just mention to you guys, this isn't, you know, how much people give, you know, the kind of giving in a church, that's not like the only measure of health in a church by any stretch of the imagination. But it does say something about the generosity of the people. And I, I told you guys I'd give you this information, but during December, you know, we, we were like, you know, there's some Sundays that we didn't meet during the year. We need to make up for some of those Sundays. And we were like, well, if we could raise somewhere between 50000 and $80,000 during the month of December, that would be awesome. But, but I was kind of, just very honestly, I was like, you know, we'll never, we'll never raise $50,000. But okay, if we do, that's great. And, and then we passed $50,000, and I was like, wow, that's awesome, but we'll never get to $80,000. If we did, it'd be great. We'll never get there. You guys ended up giving during the month of December $114,000. So it was like unbelievable. And what that speaks to is your generosity and your willingness to take ownership of this church. And uh, if you're new here, I, I, you know, listen, I'm, we're not about money. That's not what we're about. But it is a mark of the generosity of the people in the church. And I want to say thank you for your generosity to City Church. I want to welcome those of you who are listening to us by our podcast or by our City Church app. Glad you're joining us. If you live here in Evansville, I realize many of you who listen don't live here in Evansville. But for those who do... Would love to invite you to come and join us here at the center, uh, 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. You just missed a great time of worship. We have an incredible band, and uh, so just come and join us some morning at 10 o'clock here at the center. We began a new series last week, and it was called I, I Have My Doubts. And each week what we're doing in this series is that we're looking at a specific doubt or a specific objection that many people have to Christianity. Last week, the doubt or the objection that we talked about was exclusivity. And the question was sort of like, you know, how can, how can we claim that we have the truth and that anybody who disagrees with us is wrong? We talked about that last week. If you didn't catch that sermon, you can do so on the City Church app if you would go out and download it, as Sean asked you to earlier. For some people, though, exclusivity doesn't pose the biggest problem to their belief in Christianity. Really, for some people, it's the issue of evil and suffering. If God exists... And if he's so powerful and if he's so good, how can there be so much evil and suffering in the world? And it's a formidable question. And I would just, if, you know, if you're the kind of person that has asked that question and has tried to wrestle through that, kudos to you. That takes a lot of courage, I think, to be willing to ask very hard questions uh, about your faith in Christ. Uh, and if you're here this morning, you've never asked, or excuse me, you, you know, you've asked that question and you, you don't, you wouldn't say that, yes, I've believed in Christ because this is a big issue to you. Kudos to you for being here this morning. I frankly can't imagine any thinking person not asking that question in the face of the evils that we see in the world and in, face, in the face of the suffering that really every single one of us goes through. Uh, this past week, as you guys know, 12 innocent people in Paris were murdered by religious zealots offended by their cartoons. Cartoons! Where was God in that? Why didn't God stop that? And let me just be very transparent uh, with you this morning. This issue of evil and suffering, this has been the doubt that has plagued me as a Christian and, and as a pastor, for all the years that I've been a pastor, this has been the doubt, this has been the issue that has plagued me the most over the years. 
personally. I know that some of you think that working in the church doesn't, like it's not working in the real world, but I would bet you that I get a broader and more close-up and personal and even frequent dose of the evil and suffering in the world than many of you do. Uh, I've held parents who have lost their children. I've been at the bedside of young people, good young people, as they drew their last breath. I've done funerals for infants and children. I've tried to comfort loved ones whose family members have succumbed to the ravages of depression and hopelessness through suicide. I've been called to aid women whose husbands have been beaten within an inch of, whose husbands have beaten them within an inch of their lives. And I've counseled more people who are victims of sexual abuse than, than you, I, I promise you, than you can imagine. And in each one of those circumstances, and, and in my own personal sufferings too, I have often doubted the goodness and even the existence of God. Why in the world would he allow some of this stuff? And why would he not stop some of this stuff? What do we say to this very real and very formidable doubt that people have about the existence of God and about Christianity? And how do we respond to this objection that people have to the existence of God on the basis of evil and suffering in the world? Well, that's what we're going to answer today. That's what we're going to look at today. And let me just say that before we do, I, you know, I want you to hear me on this, that what I'm going to say today may not, I mean, like when you, if you're in the middle of, of suffering, if you see evil in your relational world in some way, uh, it's not going to solve it. And it may not completely eradicate all of your doubts about God's goodness and power. I mean, it may not. Every time I go through something new, something fresh, that's painful, I, I find myself wondering the same thing. But it will give you a response. It will give you something to hold on to. And I, I, would, I would argue that Christianity, unlike any of the other religions or philosophies, philosophies in the world, while it doesn't answer the reason for every single thing that you go through that's painful, it does give you more resources for hope and encouragement than any other philosophy or religion in the world. And we'll speak to that today. Okay, so if you have a Bible with you this morning, and I know you do since I challenged you to bring one last week, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in it to 1 Peter in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, 1 Peter was written by a disciple of Jesus. His name was Peter. That's pretty cool how that works out, right? Peter, 1 Peter, okay. Uh, Peter is writing to first century followers of Jesus Christ. These people are suffering enormous persecution for their faith in Christ. I mean, this, this like isn't some abstract letter. This is to people who are suffering. And I want to start reading at chapter 1, verse 
3, chapter 1, verse 3. But before I do, let me just say one more time, seriously, if you're a regular here at this church, bring a Bible, because we're going to look at this thing every single week. Imagine going to college and going to your econ class and not having an econ uh, book. Uh, Imagine going to an algebra class and not having an algebra textbook. That would make no sense, would it? It doesn't make any sense to come to a church that's going to study the Bible and not bring a Bible with you. So next week, bring a Bible. This is my goal. By the end of the year, my goal is to have everybody who comes here that's a regular bring a Bible to church. Now, I'm okay if you bring a digital Bible. That's, that's cool if you bring a digital Bible. But if you don't bring a digital Bible, bring a real hard copy of the Bible so that you can take notes, okay, and you can keep these in your Bible with you, and you can look back sometime when you're reading First Peter, and you go, man, that unbelievable guy, Jeff Kincaid, told me some great things from this passage. That's really what this is about, is to get you to remember anything I say. That's really it. First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 3. Here we go. Where is First Peter? Here we go. Okay. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's a mouthful, man. That is a mouthful. And unfortunately, I don't have enough time uh, today to do a detailed exposition of the whole passage, but there are a few uh, significant things that I want to point out this morning from this passage as it relates to the presence of evil and suffering. And what I want you to notice, first of all, in this passage is that Peter tells these people who are suffering themselves, he tells them one thing not to do in the face of evil and suffering. One thing not to do in the face of evil and suffering. He says, don't abandon belief in God in the face of evil and suffering. Don't do that. Don't abandon belief in God. Don't abandon your faith in God in the face of evil and suffering. Now, that's interesting because I think one of, the, one of the very natural responses to evil and suffering is when you go through it to get, very, to get angry at God and to just, you know, you, it's like you shake your fist at God and you just, I mean, you just want to abandon your belief in Him. I, I understand. I get that. I understand that. But Peter's, Peter's telling these people, you know, abandoning your belief in God doesn't help anything if you're going through evil and suffering. Look at, look at verse 6. Look at what he says in verse 6 again. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Go on in verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, He's saying the pain and the suffering that you're going through doesn't have to destroy your faith. It can actually strengthen it. In fact, it ought to strengthen it. And I want you to consider what Peter is saying here. He's saying in the face of evil and suffering, 
abandoning belief in God won't help you understand what you're going through. Uh, it, it, doesn't even, it doesn't help you handle it. And that's contrary to most people's um, intuition. In fact, this past week, I, I just mentioned this, this past week I was reading a blog by a former pastor, uh, and it was on CNN's website. And this pastor was saying that he's become an atheist. And he was saying that atheism has helped him cope with all of the evil and suffering in the world. So he says it has helped him, and yet Peter, Peter would say he's wrong, that it won't help you. Why would, why would Peter say he's wrong? Well, I want, you, I want to just take a moment, and I want to think through this for just a moment. And I want to, I want to help you understand why Peter would say that abandoning God in the face of evil and suffering will not help you understand it, and it will not help you cope, it, cope with it. And let's think through this for just a moment. First, I want you to just write this down somewhere. Evil and suffering isn't evidence against God. Evil and suffering is not evidence against God. And you think it is, but it's not. Uh, in a book called Re- The Reason for God, a pastor and author by the name of Tim Keller quotes the philosopher J.L. Mackey. And Mackey makes a case against God through the existence of evil and suffering in the world. And I want you to read with me what Mackey writes. We'll put it up here on the screen for you. He says, If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist. I think that's funny to say no God may exist, but anyway. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. I think think you would agree that that resonates with most of us. Wouldn't you agree? Many years ago, uh, I had a young man uh, wanted to schedule an appointment with me, and he came into my office. He, he had lost, he'd lost his baby daughter. The, the baby daughter had died. And he came in, and he was very straightforward with me. And he said, you know, he said, this, this loss has removed any faith in God that I had. And he was like, I can't make any, I can make no sense of this. And boy, I, I could sure understand. I could empathize with it. And a young woman I know lost her mother at an early age. And she, she could not reconcile how any good God could allow that to have happened. And I, and I get that too, right? I get that. I imagine that you, you do too. But I do want you to notice something. I want you to notice that in Within Mackey's statement that the world is uh, filled with unjustifiable and pointless evil, within that statement there is a premise that I I just want to highlight for you. It goes like this. Here's the premise. If evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. So like if I think it's pointless, then it absolutely must be pointless. And I would just ask you, I, I, anybody who's listening to this, do you really have that much faith in your cognitive abilities to say something that bold? 
that like if it doesn't seem like it has a point to me, then it must not have a point? See, I'm not that confident in my cognitive abilities. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. I am very frustrated every time I drive down the Lloyd Expressway and hit this big glut at 41 in the Lloyd where all this work is happening. I'm very frustrated by this. And I feel pretty confident that there's got to be some way to do all of that work without us having to sit in these traffic jams that go on forever and ever. I'm pretty confident that there is some way to do that. But I also know that if I... If I, because it all seems pointless to me, what we're doing. I mean, I, I get why we want to do the ramps. That's a good thing. Positive. Good. I like that. But I don't understand why we, it seems pointless, the traffic jams that I am sitting through there. Anybody agree with me on this? Or are you guys just like, like yeah, right, okay. However, however, I can't, I'm sure that if I talk to an engineer, that they would be able to show me all of the complexities of this issue that make this the best way to do it. I'm not even confident of my own cognitive abilities to say that that whole traffic jam thing out there is pointless and that, there's, that there isn't some better way to do it. I'm not cognitive of my abilities to do that. Or I'm, not, I'm not confident in my cognitive abilities for that. Are you really so confident to say that if something, if some evil, some suffering in the world seems pointless to you, that there absolutely cannot be any reason, anything about it that is redemptive? Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure of that? See, that's the premise. If it seems pointless to me, then it has to be pointless. Are you that confident of yourself? You know, I want to tell you guys something. I, I have told you this before. Uh, I have battled depression uh, most of my life. And there have been times that I've been very angry and very resentful uh, towards God about it. Like shaking my fist at him about it. But there, let me tell you guys something. I have noticed over the years that my struggles with depression have given me a greater sensitivity to other people who struggle with depression. I've noticed that. And I've also noticed that the position that I have, the platform that, I'm, that the Lord has given me, uh, has helped others when I talk about it it has helped others to find hope and healing now look I if you give me a choice depression no depression I'm going to take no depression every time I don't want it but I can see good that's come out of it and I know some of you I know many of you can identify with that with that narrative. I mean, I, I know that you've experienced some of the similar things. I've known people who've had cancer that uh, they've told me that it changed them in ways that they're incredibly grateful for. They would have never chosen cancer and uh, they don't want it again. But they've told me that, it, it, that their battle with cancer gave them more insight, that it deepened them. It gave them more substance in some way, more than any other experience in their life. In other words... 
look, just because evil and suffering seems pointless to you, it doesn't mean that from God's vantage point that it's pointless. And I just want to challenge you that if you're, if you're here this morning and you're saying, look, there's so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, I would just, I would just challenge you. Are you that confident in your cognitive abilities to say that there is no point from God's vantage point for all the evil and suffering in the world? Okay. That's one reason that Peter says to these people, don't abandon your belief in God just because you see, just because you're going through suffering. Don't abandon that. But there's a second reason that he says it. He said, let, me, let, me, let me give it to you this way. Evil and suffering, while they're not evidence against God, evil and suffering are actually evidence for the existence of God. Evil and suffering are actually evidence for the existence of God, and I know that that's a bold statement, and I know that it seems counterintuitive, so let me just take a minute and explain what I mean here. Uh, Many years ago, in a famous letter from Birmingham, Alabama, Martin Luther King Um, Actually, he was in a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama. Martin Luther King once wrote about the evil of discrimination. And he made the point in this letter. It's a very famous letter. You you can get it. It's all over the Internet. But wonderful little book that was written a number of years ago um, that's just sort of a compilation of all the letters uh, from Martin Luther King. Great book. Anyway, he made the point in uh, in this letter that The only way that he could know or that any of us could ever know whether a human law was unjust is if there's a divine law, a higher law from God. And he says, says you know, like if there's no divine law, there's no way to know if a human law is unjust or not. So, uh, for instance, somebody could say, you know, like if if there's no God, somebody might say, Oh, racial discrimination is unjust. But that would, be, that would only be according to their standard or their opinion, right? And the question that you would have to ask is, well, why should their standard or their opinion be privileged over somebody else's who says, no, I think racial discrimination is very just, you know, why, why should one person's opinion be elevated over someone else's? But, but let me take it a step further. Again, you know, if there's no God, there's no, there's no higher divine law. So here's my question to you. If there is no God, if there's no higher divine law, then how in the world could we say that any violent historical event is unjust? Because if there's nothing but nature in the world, if nature is all there is, there's nothing more natural than violence. In fact, it's, it's, how you and I, it's how you and I got here, according to the theory of natural selection, is the strong eating the weak. So like if there is no God and, and, and all we have is nature, what's wrong with violence? It's perfectly natural. I hope it don't sound snooty. I hope it don't sound like faux intellectual by what I'm going to give you here. But one person who really did understand this, ironically, 
uh, was Jean-Paul Sartre. Who, he, was, he was an existentialist. He was a, one of the key thinkers behind Marxism. And Sartre didn't believe in a creator. And in one of his most well-known works, uh, he wrote this. Put it up here on the screen. He says, if God does not exist, there can no longer be an a priori good, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. Nowhere is it written that we must be honest, that we must not lie, because the fact is we are on a plane where there are only men. Dostoevsky said, if God didn't exist, everything would be possible. That is the very starting point of existentialism. Indeed, everything is permissible if God does not exist. And as a result, man is forlorn because neither within him nor without does he find anything uh, to cling to. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if there is no God, then you, you might have feelings that this is wrong or this is unjust, but that's, that's all it is. It's just personal feelings. On what basis, if there's no God, could you object that the natural order of violence is unnatural? How could you ever say that the natural order of violence is unnatural? See, a person who doesn't believe in God doesn't have a basis for being outraged at, say, the killing of 12 innocent people in Paris. Doesn't have a basis for outrage at the inhumane treatment of innocent girls by Boko Haram doesn't have a basis for their outrage at the killing of policemen in New York City or the choking death of Eric Garner. In short, the person who doesn't believe in God simply has no basis other than their opinion for saying that those things are unjust or that they're inhumane or that they're evil. And so this is another reason that Peter says abandoning God in the presence of evil and suffering won't help you understand or cope with suffering and evil. Because if you don't believe in God, suffering and evil becomes a much bigger problem for you than if you do believe in God. Because you have no basis to say that it's wrong, that it's unjust, that it's evil. So it's not just not evidence against God, evil and suffering. It's also evidence for God. Here's the thing. All of that's good and fine. But the real deal with evil and suffering, (laughs) logic and philosophy and, and, and all of that in the abstract may make all kinds of sense. You may be sitting here going, yes, okay, that makes sense. But but if you're suffering this morning, or if you have a loved one who is suffering, or if evil has happened to you and it seems like it has no meaning. All of the logic and all of the philosophy in the world, um, well, the honest truth is it really does nothing to ease your pain, does it? There is no comfort in logic. There's no comfort in philosophy. Which is why I always say here that, that Christianity is more than just philosophy. It is a philosophy, but it's more than that. Christianity is a person, Jesus Christ. And look... There's, there's absolutely nothing that I'm going to say this morning can, that can take away whatever pain you're experiencing this morning. It, ju- it just can't. The only thing that I can tell you is that unlike atheism, unlike Islam, unlike Buddhism, unlike Mormonism, or any other religion in the world, Christianity, while it doesn't give you a reason for every act of evil or suffering, it does provide you, as I said earlier, 
with profound resources for facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. You may have noticed that throughout this passage here in 1 Peter, you may have noticed that Peter just he keeps pointing these people back to Jesus. Verse 3. Verse 3, he says, he, he just he starts this section off by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on throughout the passage and he keeps reminding them of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and he keeps reminding them that he's coming again. Uh, he's, Jesus Christ is coming again in the future. And I would just suggest to you that he does this for two reasons. One of which is consolation. You might want to write this down somewhere. That in Jesus' suffering, we find consolation in our own suffering. In Jesus' suffering, we find consolation in our own suffering. I think you can see, it's very obvious here, that no one, including Christians, is ever promised a life free of evil and suffering. That's evident from this passage, right? But Christianity does promise that the one who is the center of Christianity understands our suffering. He does. Christianity alone, among all of the world religions and all the philosophies of the world, Christianity alone says that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he knows firsthand what, what despair feels like. He knows firsthand what it feels like to be rejected. He knows firsthand the pain of loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, imprisonment. He knows all of those things firsthand. There is no abstractness about suffering for Jesus. It was very personal for Jesus, even to the point of the cross that he hung on. On that cross, Jesus himself willingly endured a greater evil and a greater suffering than any human ever will. And he did it for the evil that humanity itself has done. Interesting, isn't it, that humanity blames God for the evil and suffering that we cause. But in his love, Jesus Christ, though he didn't cause any of that evil and suffering, took it on himself. And while the physical torture that Jesus experienced on the cross was immense, that was not the worst pain that Jesus experienced. Let me put it to you this way. If you've ever lost someone that you love, like maybe someone that you had a relationship with for a few years or a few decades or maybe even for a lifetime, you, you know what it feels like, right, to be cut off from someone that you love. Like you understand the finality of death. There's a pain that no one can describe to anyone who hasn't experienced that. Finality just, it, it's like it, it's, it, it's like it takes, takes your breath away. All, all you can do with that finality is just cry out in agony. But I want you to imagine losing someone, not that you had a relationship with for a few years or for a few decades or for a lifetime. I want you to imagine losing someone that you have been very close with, intimately close with, for eternity. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was cut off from his father. He experienced a desolation like no one has ever known. It's why he cried out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why he cried that out in that moment on the cross. And in that moment, he experienced 
a greater evil and a greater suffering than any human being has ever known. In fact, he experienced a greater evil and greater suffering than all of humanity in the history of the world has ever known. You can take all of the evils in the history of the world from the ovens of Treblinka to the killing fields of Cambodia. You can put them all together and they pale in comparison to the agony that Jesus suffered in that separation from his father. Whatever it is that you're suffering today, whatever evil that you may have experienced, I want you to know this. Peter keeps pointing us back to Jesus here because he wants you to know that Jesus understands. He understands it personally, not in the abstract. He's felt it himself. And that doesn't make your pain go away. But it does let you know that the one whom you worship empathizes, identifies, has experienced it himself. He doesn't sit up in some ivory tower, look down on your pain, and say, well, I bet that's really bad. No, he knows. He's experienced what it feels like. That's why Peter keeps pointing us back to Jesus here in this passage. There's another reason that Peter keeps pointing us back to Jesus. And it's not, it's not just consolation. Yes, there is this issue of consolation that we, we're consoled by knowing that Jesus suffered, but there's something else. It's restoration. In Jesus' resurrection, we're promised restoration for the evil and the suffering that we have experienced in our lives. Peter uh, tells these people that he's writing to, these folks that are suffering, he says, verse 3, last part of uh, verse 3, says, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. There is this mistaken notion uh, about Christianity. Many people in Christianity have this mistaken notion. Certainly people outside of Christianity have this mistaken notion that Christianity is all about getting people saved so that they can go away to heaven. But that's not what Peter is referring to here when he talks about an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What Peter's talking about is what the Bible talks about. It says that the Bible teaches that the future is not an immaterial paradise. The Bible teaches that the future is a is a very material heaven and earth, a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is going to heal the planet that we live on. He's going to restore it. He's going to turn it back to the way that it was intended to be from the very beginning. And in that, all of the evil and all of the suffering and all of the death and all of the mourning and all of the sickness is going to be done away with forever one day in the future. And his resurrection is a promise of that. And it secures a place in that new earth and new heaven and new earth for those who believe. That's why one of the, if you look around uh, this room on the banners, the first banner that we have says believe. We, we're an inclusive group of people. We want you, if you have never believed in Jesus, we want you to believe. We want you to be part of us. And we want you to be part of that new heaven and, and new earth. We want you to be consoled by what Jesus has gone through. We want you to experience the restoration that is going to come. Because his resurrection is a promise that he's going to restore it. And it means, it also means that every horrible thing that has ever happened to you, 
and every horrible thing that's ever happened to anybody else that you know or love, that it's not only going to be undone, but it's going to be repaired in a way, in some way, that will make the eventual glory and joy even greater because of what you've gone through. That's the promise of restoration. And if you know that, if you understand that, if you get that, that that's what Jesus wants to do and what he's going to do, then it helps you to endure the present sufferings that we're going through. This past year, I uh, went back and I read a, uh, just a phenomenal book. Uh, if you like to read, man, I just re- really recommend it. It's Fyodor Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers Karamazov. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but I want you to listen to this quote. I'm going to close. Okay, so I'll close with this. But just let me let, read this quote from this book. One of his characters says this in the book. He says, I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for, that in the world's finality, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all of the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that's been shed, that it will make it not just possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. And what he speaks of is what Peter refers to when he says here in verse 4, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When Jesus restores the heaven the heavens and the earth and he puts it all right everything you've been through every bit of suffering every bit of evil Jesus is going to put it all right one day in the future would you bow your heads with me and let's close our Lord Jesus Christ as we come upon a Topic like evil and suffering, when we experience evil and suffering, everything in us cries out. And that is right. We, we, we are to cry out. This planet isn't what you intended. The way things are, the, the, the world that we live in is not what you intended it to be. But you're going to put it right. You didn't just sit away um, sort of like in an abstract sense and look at our evil and suffering and not be involved. Instead, you, you, you made yourself. You became human. And you took on all of the evil and suffering in the world when you hung on a cross. And so we look back at that, but we look forward to the day that you come again when you're going to put it all right and, and the world is going to be everything that you intended it to be from the beginning. And there will be no more death and mourning and sickness and evil and suffering. None of that will exist. And you're going to put everything right that has happened to us. Every injustice that we've experienced, every evil, every, every pain, everything that we've gone through, you're going to put it right and, and in a way that will bring us great joy. 
Lord, I pray for the people that are here this morning that are suffering. I, I can only imagine what people here are going through today. Lord, would you give them a sense of consolation this morning? But you, would you also give them a hope for restoration in the future? For those that are here this morning, Lord, that maybe have never believed on you, I pray that maybe today would be a day that they would be willing to bring their entire lives to the foot of the cross. And they would look upon you and believe that you are the Savior, the Messiah of the world. Or there may be people here today who've done things that they feel so bad about. They're like, God could never forgive me. Lord, would you reassure them that there's never been a human being in all of human history that has sinned so vilely and so wickedly that you couldn't forgive them. And then, Lord, there may be people here today who are like, I don't need to, I, I, I've lived such a good life and they, they, they look at all of the good things they've done and they're like, I don't need a Savior. Lord, would you, would you bring them to a place that they recognize that they too, just like all of the rest of us here in this room and everyone else on the planet, that all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Would you bring them to a point that they stop looking at, you, at, them, at themselves and their works, but that they would look at you on the cross and that they would kneel before the cross as well and believe upon you worship you, Lord Jesus. We believe that you died and that you were risen. And we believe that you're coming again. And it's in your name we worship and pray. Amen.